Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Hey there. So glad to have you with me for this episode. All right, I'm just going to come out and say it. 1972 was the official start of the golden age for John Williams. I'm sure many of you will disagree with me, thinking the best period of John Williams' career as a film composer won't start for a few more years. But after hearing the score to Jane Eyre a couple of episodes ago, and discussing the work Williams did on Fiddler on the Roof last episode, I think a corner was officially turned, and John Williams finally found his musical voice. I think that voice truly made itself known in this episode's featured film, The Cowboys. A lot of John Williams fans count this as their favorite score, and I completely understand why. I'm going to reevaluate my list of favorite John Williams scores eventually, and possibly add this to the list of my top 10. One of the listeners who counts The Cowboys as one of his favorites is Jay Redshaw, who left this comment on the Podbean app a couple of weeks ago about the score for The Reavers. Quote, There is a magical quality in the music of this film in both the composition and arrangements that seems to indicate for the first time a new genius has entered the genre of film music. This was a film that I didn't see until long afterwards, but if I had, I might have become a fan earlier. It wasn't until I saw The Cowboys in 1972 that I recognized his brilliant talent. End quote. I wasn't alive in 1972 when The Cowboys was in theaters, but I would have loved to have been in a movie theater like Jay Rudshaw was to hear that sumptuous music coming from the speakers. Now, I knew nothing about the plot of The Cowboys before watching the movie for this podcast, and I had never heard one note of music from the score. I knew Williams performed the music in concert quite often, but none of the concert I attended when he was conducting featured music from the Cowboys, so I had missed out. But in the end, it allowed me to approach the score in the film with fresh ears, and my ears really enjoyed what they heard. The movie itself is quite good as well. It's based on a novel by William Dale Jennings, and this was one of John Wayne's final films and pretty much his last box office success before dying from cancer in 1979. I'm a big fan of John Wayne in the movies, though not necessarily of his politics, and this had to be one of his most difficult performances, working with 11 young boys through the entire shoot. It is said that you never want to act with children or animals, and John Wayne had to work with both. In addition to the 11 kids, he had a large herd of cattle and lots of horses to wrangle. But the Duke was an old hand at it, and he made it look easy here. In an interview he did a few years later, Wayne counted his time filming the Cowboys as, quote, the greatest experience of my life, end quote. Some major spoilers coming up about the plot of the movie, so if you don't want to know, it's best to watch the movie because I'll be talking about some big plot points throughout the show. Wayne stars as Will Anderson, a man in his 60s who needs to move a herd of cattle about 400 miles. The adult ranch hands he hired have left him to find gold during the famous gold rush period of the late 1800s. In his desperation, Will picks the 11 boys at a nearby school to move the herd with him. 
The film starts as a light western drama as Will and the boys learn to get along. Then the plot turns very dark when a villain, played by Bruce Dern, tries to steal the herd for himself. This leads to a finale in which Bruce Dern's character kills Will and the boys get revenge. As I was watching the movie, two of the boys looked very familiar, but I couldn't quite place them until I saw the end credits. As Slim, Robert Carradine makes his film debut, launching a career that would include the Vietnam drama Coming Home, and alongside his brother David in Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets. But it was the 1984 comedy Revenge of the Nerds that made him famous. Also in the film is A. Martinez as Cimarron. Martinez is mostly known to those of you who watch soap operas. Martinez has been on pretty much every soap opera there is, with a couple of roles on regular TV shows as well. Mike Rydell produced and directed this film, bringing his screenwriting team from the Reavers to adapt this screenplay with Jennings. Rydell also wanted John Williams for this score, and he had the good sense to ask Williams to take on the assignment early. The movie was filmed in the summer of 1971, just when Williams was finishing up work on Fiddler on the Roof at Anvil Studios in London. Another frequent collaborator, Delbert Mann, went straight from working on Jane Eyre to direct Kidnapped in Scotland. Williams tentatively put his name down as composer for Kidnapped, but issues with casting led to filming being delayed. That forced Williams to inform Mann that he couldn't write the score to Kidnapped because he already had promised Rydell he would return to Los Angeles in fall 1971 to work on the Cowboys. After spending the better part of a year in London working on Jane Eyre and Fiddler on the Roof, Williams was back home in Los Angeles, where he was undoubtedly happy to be back with his wife and children full-time. I wonder what he thought about jumping right into a truly American score after loving the English sensibilities of Jane Eyre and the British flavor of the orchestra for Fiddler on the Roof. For the score to the Cowboys, Williams wouldn't be working with a virtuoso soloist like he did for his two previous assignments, but he wrangled a great performance from the studio orchestra in Hollywood. And he managed to record the score just over five days in November 1971, just as Fiddler on the Roof was becoming a big hit on movie screens. Williams has called Rydell one of the few directors in Hollywood who understood the importance of music for a film, and it shows in the film's opening credits. After we see a team of horses galloping toward the screen, Williams turns on the orchestra with some music that got me sitting straight up. After the first 10 seconds, my mind immediately picked up on what Williams was trying to do. Just as he did with the Reavers, Williams was using the great Aaron Copeland as inspiration. But where it was only a template for the Reavers score, Copeland's music is a full-on model in the opening for the Cowboys. Once the frenetic energy calms down, we are treated to a theme that will run throughout the film and will be attached to the young boys hired to drive the cattle across the western wilderness.
Another theme we're introduced to is the theme for Will Anderson, and it's a little more fast-paced here than it will be in the actual film. Big energetic pieces of the opening music will undoubtedly remind you of Aaron Copland's Hoedown, one of his famous pieces. Here's a listen to it for comparison. The theme for Will Anderson doesn't feature prominently throughout the film, but there is a moment when he stands outside looking at his horses. His wife joins him, and they have a tender moment together before Will lets the horses run free. The gorgeous music goes very well with Robert Surtees' gorgeous cinematography.
Will decides to only hire the boys who can stay on top of his wild horse named Crazy Alice. One by one, the 11 boys manage to ride the bucking bronco long enough to convince Will to join him. This is our real introduction to the kids' theme outside of the opening titles, and it has just enough of a comedic flavor to make the scene light, but not juvenile. Note that the theme is pretty much relegated to the woodwinds. Now that Will has his 11 cowboys, he has to get them ready for the demands of herding cattle. That includes roping cattle and horses, and this scene has a very comedic feel to it, but also bringing in the Copeland-esque music from the opening. Again, note that the kids' theme remains in the woodwinds.
Also joining Will and the boys on the trip is a cook named Nightlinger. He's the first black man the boys have ever seen, and unfortunately there is use of the N-word as the boys ask Nightlinger about his life. He tells them stories of his life, and the boys are a little creeped out by the tales. I wasn't going to highlight this moment in the film, but the scene and the music reminded me so much of the scene in Jaws when Quint tells of the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. The music isn't as eerie here, but it does keep that air of mystery hanging over the proceedings. The team is assembled and heads to Belforce, South Dakota with the cattle. The scene, as expected, is accompanied by great energy from the orchestra, with the kids' theme dominating the music. It's interesting that Will's theme hasn't been heard much, if at all, even though he's the one in charge. Once again, pay attention to the fact that the kids' theme stays mostly in the woodwinds, except for one brief moment when the trumpets play it, though a little quietly and later on harmonica.
The group is moving along without much incident for the next 25 minutes of the movie. The kids drink some whiskey and have to take a foul-tasting potion to cure their hangovers. And Cimarron, who was not hired to be a part of the group earlier, joins the group after saving Slim from drowning. But the film takes that dramatic turn at the 75-minute mark when Bruce Dern's character, named only Longhair because, well, he has long hair, threatens one of the boys if he tells Will they are being followed. I was intrigued by the instrumentation of the music in this scene. It's very low on the musical scale, well below middle C, and so low that it sounds more like a rumble than a melody. Turns out that it's a bass harmonica being played. I don't think I'd ever heard a bass harmonica before, and at first listen, it'll sound like the sound doesn't come from a natural instrument, but rather from a synthesizer. The music rises as Longhair dunks the boy, named Dan, in the river to threaten him some more. This scene actually had my stomach in knots. Bruce Dern built a career off playing very evil characters, and this has to be the slimiest one I've seen. Since Dan doesn't tell anyone about his encounter, Longhair continues to follow the herd, waiting for the right time to strike. John Williams puts in some interesting percussion in one scene, even throwing in a rattle to suggest that these bad men are snakes. Well, at least that's my interpretation of it.
only gets worse for Will and the boys when Longhair and his gang finally confront Will. Longhair and Will get into a fist fight, and just when he is about to be beaten, Longhair pulls out a gun. Will, being the bigger man, walks away from Longhair, who shoots Will in both arms and one leg. Then, once Will turns to face him, Longhair shoots Will in the stomach, dropping him to the ground. Longhair and the gang take off with the cattle to South Dakota to get the money. This fight scene does not get any music, a wise but unconventional choice by Rydell and Williams. As I mentioned earlier, Will does not survive. The boys in Nightlinger bury him. Then we assume everyone will head home with their tails between their legs. But the boys decide to get the cattle back and initially tie up Nightlinger in order to get his wagon. This begins a long sequence in which Williams makes some interesting orchestral choices. Remember the tinkling piano Williams used in the mid-1960s when people were sneaking around in the movies? In place of piano, Williams uses snare drums and timpani here when the boys sneak up on three of the bad guys and kill them. The percussion leads the proceedings in the music here, but the kids theme pops up every once in a while. With the exception of one brief moment, the theme is still played in the wind section. Thank you. 
Each attack on the men gets an orchestral hit, including one moment when Cimarron stabs a man twice. The plan is eventually to lead the men into a canyon and engage them in a shootout. Longhair and his men put Nightlinger in a noose in order to lynch him, but that is foiled by gunshots from the boys hiding in the trees. This final battle is scored by Williams in a major key, and just wait for the moment when the kids' theme is finally played extensively on a grown-up instrument. So I was really excited to hear the kids theme played on the trumpet. Finally, John Williams was saying these boys have become men and he was scoring it as such. So the kids win the day, they get the cattle to scout the coda and use some of the money to buy a proper headstone for Will's grave. The final shot of the movie shows us the grave marker as the boys and Nightlinger right away in the background. Will's theme finally gets some prominence here.
The Cowboys made $19 million after its release in January 1972. Since it was filmed on a very modest $6 million budget, it was a big moneymaker for Warner Brothers. The critics took a lot of issue over the finale in which preteen boys shoot and kill adult men, saying that the movie sent a wrong message that killing is what turns boys into men. I didn't really see it that way. I viewed the finale in light of the boys doing what they had to do in that situation. If they had been back in their regular lives at home, I don't think they would have been murderous criminals. And I don't think they became murderous criminals when they grew up. I like to think that if there was a sequel, all the boys would have been very prosperous and upstanding citizens with this one summer a milestone in their lives. For John Williams, this indeed was a milestone film. The score did not get an album release until 1994, but before then, Williams had been keeping the memory of the score alive through concert performances of the overture music that had been composed for special screenings of the film in 1972. And of course, he enjoyed working with Rydell so much that he said yes to Rydell's next film the following year, a 180 degree turn from the saddles and spurs of the Cowboys. But before Rydell and Williams could collaborate again, the maestro had a stunning seven scores to write in the span of 23 months. There was also a major TV movie of the week that had John Williams' name on it, but no one has been able to confirm the level of his involvement. The movie was called The Screaming Woman, and it starred Oscar winner Olivia de Havilland as a woman who believes a woman has been buried alive on her property. No one believes her, mostly because she has just left a mental institution. The music in the movie is quite good, and I was prepared to discuss it at length in a separate episode, until I found out that Williams wrote only 43 seconds of the score. The rest of the music was cobbled together from the music of other composers, including Jerry Goldsmith, and only Williams got credit for writing original music for the end credits. Or at least that's what multiple sources seem to confirm. No one truly knows how much music Williams wrote for the film, or even if he spent any time in 1971 composing music for The Screaming Woman. It's also possible that this music was written for another project when Williams was under contract with Review Studios back in the early to mid-1960s. And since Universal Studios owned Review Studios, music supervisor Hal Mooney might have just grabbed the unused 43 seconds of music and slapped it into the end credits. The Internet Movie Database suggests that this music was composed by Williams specifically for the film, and I doubt it would have taken him more than a couple days to scribble out this theme. The Screaming Woman aired on NBC on January 29, 1972, about two weeks after the Cowboys hit theaters. It was a decent success, but since there was almost no original music, I can't really count it as a major TV project for John Williams. 
It's just a blip on the radar that fans talk about from time to time. John Williams had much more on his plate in 1972 that he might not have remembered to watch The Screaming Woman on TV to hear how much of his music fit into the show. Most of us know that Williams doesn't really watch the final cuts of the film projects in which he's involved anyway. Once he'd wrapped up work on The Cowboys, two previous collaborators from his TV days were ready to get him involved in movies that would be very different from one another. In the next episode, we'll talk about John Williams' work on The Poseidon Adventure, starting a brief period of work in the disaster movie genre, thanks in part to Irwin Allen. I hope you enjoyed learning more about the score to the Cowboys. As always, I encourage you to reach out to me with your comments and suggestions. You can send me an email at jeffswim at aol.com or post a comment on the Podbean app. It's been a joy hanging out with you today, and until next time, the baton is down. Thank you.